God, as we reflect on your coming, your advent into this world, as we reflect this time of year on that, as we reflect more deeply together as a church, and as we reflect even on your second coming, your promise that you will come again, I pray that you would reveal to us on the pages of Scripture why you had to come and what our what, what you call us to in terms of a response to that coming, what you call us to in terms of a response to prepare for your coming again. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have a lot to work through, but to our, it's to our advantage that a lot of the things and the themes that we're going to be discussing from this chapter are actually themes of ours at Gospel Life Church because... So there's this thing that's helpful for Christians. And, you know, if you're here and you're a non-believer, you're skeptical of the claims of Christianity, but you're interested in learning more about Christianity, I think it's helpful f- for you, too, to, to understand what the Bible is teaching. It's this thing called biblical theology, because there are these images that run across the Scriptures that the authors of Scripture use to kind of point back and forth, right? So Biblical theology is super helpful. Understanding the way that images work is super helpful. And it's especially helpful, enormously helpful, here in Revelation as we examine some of this together. And so some of this is going to be things that you've heard us talk about already. Because this is biblical theology. A lot of what we're going to talk about actually has to do with why as a church, the preaching ministry, the proclamation of the gospel, the spirit of God working through the word of God is really central to our ministry philosophy. It's certainly not the only thing we do, but we do see it as the epicenter of what we do because this is how the Spirit brings conviction of sin, repentance, uh, belief in the gospel, transformation for all of us, whether we're believers or non-believers as we approach the text. But but it all is kind of bound up in this thing called the good news, the proclamation of good news. In, In the ancient Roman world, proclamations of euangelion, that's the word, uh, which in the Greek is, is, is word means good news, gospel, good news. Euangelions, proclamations of gospel, would often be used at the end of a military conflict. So what would happen is, we've talked about this before related to the act of preaching, which in the New Testament also could be translated as heralding. In other words, this good news, this, this euangelion, this proclamation of gospel or good news, would, would come to people by way of a herald, a spokesperson for the king. Someone would come in and who would say, the message of the king. So it would sound something like, and I've said, I always say something like this, but it's not verbatim, but it's like, hear ye, hear ye. The king who has conquered in this region promises you peace and goodwill, good tidings, if you will now lay down your weapons and enter into his kingdom, not as enemies, but as blessed subjects. And so this, this was a revelation of the king to these people. He was revealing himself and his plan to the people in that region in order to spread what he saw as good news of peace rather than war, goodwill rather than harshness, kindness rather than retribution, and so on. And so the herald tasked with delivering this message. Now the herald didn't get to decide what, what parts of that message he deemed, you know, authoritative, what parts he deemed appropriate. He wasn't like embarrassed. He wasn't called to be embarrassed of the king's message where he's like, I don't know how they're going to respond to this. They might not like this. And, you know, you've heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, right? That's a concern of a herald. 
But the herald knew, man, if I change the king's message, it doesn't matter what they do to me. I mean, I'm in way more trouble if I do, if I do that. It would be considered treasonous. So his task was merely to proclaim the words that he was given in the language of the people directly that they might hear and understand and join the kingdom. And then we, so, so think about that. Think about that image. In light of these verses, this proclamation, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I give you, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this is the revelation of the conquering king. He's revealing himself to his people. He's declaring good news, which he has, uh, which has come to, to bring them peace, right? He has come to bring them peace. And so this good news goes out in this, in this context, but not only so. Because this good news is intended to be heard in a first century context in which they knew well of a baby born whose birth was already described as good news and who claimed to be God incarnate. This was actually a thing in the first century. We've talked about it in the past, but there's a specific reason we need to talk about it again as we look at Revelation together. The imperial cult in Rome is something that we've talked about a lot since starting Revelation. It was this um, cult that called for, for uh, state-sanctioned cult, that called for the worship of the emperor. And this imperial cult started with a popular legend that Caesar Augustus was conceived by a serpent, which represented the genius of a god. A serpent is another image we'll see in Revelation. And his, his reign was celebrated among the people as the fulfillment of the golden age, which had now finally dawned because of the birth of Caesar Augustus. And so in 9 BCE, a little over a decade before Jesus was born, a little over a decade before this proclamation of gospel was made known by the the angels to those shepherds, a little over a decade before that, the imperial cult made this written pronouncement. We have this, right? So this is historical. They said, The eternal and immortal nature of all things graciously granted the wonderfully good Caesar Augustus to perform good needs in abundance to men in order that they might enjoy prosperity of life. He's the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea. While cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons, the productivity of all things is good at its prime. There are fond hopes for the future, goodwill during the present, which fills all men, so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. See, the moment seemed desperate. For hundreds of years for God's people, increasingly so under Roman occupation, right? There was no kingly line from David, as far as the people were concerned, any longer. They no longer had any kings. They were now under Roman occupation, and their leader claimed to have authority over everything, on the land and on the sea. That was his dominion, everything, everywhere. 
And in the midst of that dominion, he would treat God's people as enemies because he stood over and against God as an enemy. And this was the world in, into which the angels brought this proclamation of good news. It was in the midst of this darkness that we see this light proclaimed from the line of David that Christ had finally come. So, then in the decades to come, as we head into Revelation, what do we see? Well, from the perspective of a late first century Christian in the 90s AD, which is, I think, where, where Revelation can be dated. The late first century Christian, this imperial cult, has become even stronger in its insistence on emperor worship. As the emperor's power grows in Rome, so does his reach in mandating that the Greek-speaking world worship him as God. Those who fail to do so run the risk of losing everything, as we've seen in weeks past, as we saw in the letters to the seven churches, from their position and standing in their community to their trade partnerships and businesses, even their very lives. Followers of Christ in the first century continue to see darkness coming out of Rome after the Jewish wars, the destruction of the temple, an increase in martyrdom of Christians. There's an increase in pressure against Christians to worship the emperor, to embrace the teaching of the day, the culture of the day. With that comes all, all sorts of immorality. Tied up in emperor worship was all kinds of um, debauchery, all kinds of evil. And so the moment once again seems desperate. And yet this was the moment in the midst of this darkness. Once again, right? This is the moment into which another angel brings a proclamation of God's coming into the world. Only this time, it's a proclamation of his second coming. It's here in the midst of this desperation that God makes his revelation known to John. And in our text this morning, Revelation 10, we see something of a pronouncement of an angel. And in this angelic pronouncement, in our text, which I think serves us nicely, on a fourth Sunday of Advent, we see five aspects of God's revelation. So God is revealing himself to John directly. We already talked about that. That Revelation claims that this is God showing himself to John, saying, write these things down, giving him direct revelation. He's giving, them this vi- giving John this vision so that he can write it down for the church, for, so that he can make it known to God's people. And as he reveals it to John, now he's teaching us something about the nature of God's revelation. Like when God reveals himself to us, when God discloses something about himself to his people here in the scriptures, he he tells us something about the nature of that. And we see five aspects of it. We see the first aspect in verses 1 through 3. Set your eyes with me there. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. So I want you to start thinking, right? We talked about biblical theology. Read Revelation if you're able. Like if, if, you, if you've read through other parts of the Scripture before, even if you think you might be familiar with various phrases from past readings, think about words and images in light of what we read here in this description. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, Think back to what we've already read in Revelation. His face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So uh, stop there for a minute. If you remember from last week, six of the seven trumpets have blown. These trumpets are judgments of God upon the earth. 
And we, we, we looked very quickly at those six trumpets. Again, I just, you know, Revelation is going to be very helpful to you. But if you miss a week, go back and listen. It will help us with the following week. But we, we see these, these um, judgments. And between the sixth and seventh trumpet, because we're not at number seven yet, we see this interlude that focuses, focuses us once again more on God's interaction with his people. Specifically, we see something about his revelation to us here. So we saw an interlude right between the sixth and seventh seal. And once again, we see an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. I, you know, you need to be careful with the word interlude because it doesn't mean like these six things happen and then God decided, well, it's, there'll be a period of a break in the judgment. And then sequentially, these six things happen and then there's going to be a break in the judgment. I, I think we'll see more reason this morning why I don't think you can read the six seals, six trumpets, six bowls in Revelation as sequence from like beginning to end. I see more evidence of that this morning. So it's not an interlude like in sequence. It's an interlude where John wants to step away from the judgments for a moment to teach us something else about God, specifically how he relates to his people. And and as he does that, as he reveals more of himself to us here, we see first of all, so the first aspect of God's revelation that we learn if you're taking notes, God's revelation is universally authoritative. That's what this text shows us. God's revelation is universally authoritative. Because here we see yet another mighty angel coming down from heaven. The text tells us he's wrapped in a cloud. And we'll talk about what a mighty angel is in a little bit. So the text tells us he's wrapped in a cloud. Where else have we heard cloud language even already in Revelation attributed to Christ, right? That when he comes, he's coming in the clouds. Jesus talks about himself that way in Matthew 24. He's coming in the clouds. Actually, as you look into the Old Testament, what you find is that this, this symbol of clouds is a, is a symbol of God's presence with his people, right? Israel knew that God was with them. How? A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Israel also saw God's presence in the form of a cloud on the mountain. God tells Moses in Leviticus on the Day of Atonement, he'll appear as a cloud over the mercy seat. So many examples of this in the Old Testament, but the idea is that this angel represents God. That he comes from the presence of God, that he comes to herald his good news. In fact, this angel is described in such glorious terms. A rainbow over his head. What does that bring us back to? Revelation chapter 4, the throne room. There's this rainbow over that throne. Face like the sun. What does that remind us of? Jesus, the description of Christ in chapter 1. Right? Legs like pillars of fire. What does pillars of fire remind you of? Right? Old Testament, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. So think about it. Cloud, pillars of fire, face shining like the sun. Same rainbow imagery as we saw in the throne room, denoting God's glorious presence. Some, Some look at this and they say, well, this must be Jesus himself then. I mean, it's a lot of, you have to acknowledge, a lot of the same descriptors are used with this angel as we've read with Christ. But I don't, I think this is wrong, and I think it's worth talking about it for a minute for a few different reasons. First, Jesus is never described as an angel in Revelation. You could say, well, yeah, he's right, right here in chapter 10, right? But no, in an undisputed, clear kind of way, like we saw him described in chapter 1, and like we will see him clearly identified uh, in other places in the book, we never see like a clear 
Jesus is an angel, and for good reason. That distinction becomes important in this book, because angels are not to be worshipped. Christ is to be worshipped. He has all authority. Angel is creation. Christ is creator. And we're going to actually see, see that distinction even in this text. Second, the term another angel, another mighty angel, reinforces that this can't be Christ. Because we, we already saw a mighty angel in chapter 4, when they, uh, they, were, they were seeking one who's worthy to open the scroll. Remember, so a mighty angel bellows out to the whole world. Is there one mighty enough to open the scroll? It would not be appropriate, right, to, to speak of Christ as just another mighty angel. It reinforces, I think, it can't be Christ. Third, we see throughout the scriptures that sometimes angels are described in terms that will offer mirror language that's attributed to God. John borrows a lot of imagery from the book of Daniel, and we see that in Daniel, specifically chapter 10, 12, in which an angel is described in terms that mirrors the ancient of days, that mirrors God himself. So the, the question is, and I think that's what's happening here, the question is why, right? So why would an angel, why would this angel in particular, be described in terms that we already saw in the description of Jesus himself, face shining like the sun, for instance? Why would an angel appear so glorious, have so many things that are connected to the throne room? And the answer, I think, is that this angel, in this text, just like we see in Daniel, comes to represent God and herald what he has to say in the world. He comes with his majesty. He comes from his glory. He comes from his presence. And we see this. So he comes with authority because he comes with God's message. Look what's happening here. The text tells us he had a scroll open in his hand. Some commentators think this is the same scroll we find in chapter 5 that had seven seals on it, and now it's opened. Some think we're looking at a different scroll entirely. Interesting, actually, actually, to be fair, I think interesting arguments on both sides, and if you're someone who's like, uh, really would love to dive in more deeply, I'd encourage you, you know, you could pick up a commentary uh, published by Baker. Grant Osborne published it. He argues, and, and he goes into a few very compelling reasons why he thinks this is the same scroll that we saw in chapter 5 with the seals on it. Then read Schreiner, ESV commentary, Tom Schreiner, and he argues the opposite, and they're, they're, it's very engaging. If you pressed me, though, I would say that I think very much this is not the same scroll that we find in chapter 5 for a lot of reasons. Only the line of the tribe of Judah could open that scroll is in the hands of God himself. It was a large scroll, seven seals. Here we see a small scroll in the hands of the angel not being passed from from uh, the one who is on the throne to the Lamb, but from an angel to John. But for our purposes this morning, I'm not sure it really matters interpretively. I mean, it does in Revelation as a whole. But I think what we see here, what we have to acknowledge either way, is that this is God's revelation about, in some sense, to some degree, something he will do, what he will do in the end. When he finally comes again to make all things new, bring full and final restoration into this broken world. And we'll talk a little bit more about specifically what that is in this scroll, but this angel coming down from the throne room with this revelation in hand, this scroll, little scroll in his hands, what does he do? Look at, look at the text. He sets what, one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, which is a way of expressing. So I think this, this tells us about the authority of God's revelation in a couple of different ways. In, in one way, it's a, it's a way of expressing that regardless of where you find yourself in this world, whether by land or by sea, God's word is binding for you. You will not find yourself in a situation in which it's binding for those people, but not for me. Like, this message from the angel, this revelation about God himself, what he will certainly do, 
doesn't change from person to person depending on who you are. And we'll see direct evidence of that, but it doesn't change. It's universally authoritative. Some will reject that authority as we've already seen. Like, in fact, the end of chapter 9, if you just glance back at it again, what does it say? It says that even after the six tr- trumpet judgments, the people who dwelled upon the earth did not repent. So some will reject the authority because it, but, but, but they'll face judgment because it absolutely does apply universally. I think this is what's, what's being said. The same thing that the emperor claimed, that he had dominion on the land and the sea in that proclamation that was made in 9 BCE and that was made subsequently by every other emperor, that he had, that everything was his dominion, everything on land, everything on sea. God is saying, no, that's false. That's my dominion. And I have authority over all of it. But its universality and authority doesn't stop there with this angel who has both his foot in the land and the sea. It shows that this revelation from God actually has power, yes, over earthly enemies, yes, over claims like men like, like Caesar, but also enemies in the spiritual realm as well. Because as we move forward into chapter 13, and this is something Revelation does often, it'll actually kind of explain itself. You'll see, you'll see words and images used, and then you go a little bit further in the text, and you'll be like, oh, <laughs> like that's what that, that meant. Yeah, there, there are things that it points you back, right? And we see that here because when we move into chapters 11, 12, 13, we come to see... This thing developing, this mirrored version of the Trinity, almost, that will look to, to displace God on his throne. Like, just like in, in Revelation, you have an antichrist, someone who wants to displace Christ, someone who's a false Christ, who claims the authority of Christ but doesn't have it. You see this, like, false Trinity, all right? Um, in chapter 12, See this great beast who's clearly identified for us there as the devil, that great serpent. But then in chapter 13, there's also a beast out of the land and a beast out of the sea. Later on, that's going to be identified as Antichrist and false prophets. You have Satan, Antichrist, false prophet. If you're wondering, who are those people? Don't worry right now. We will get to that in due time. But for right now, we, we simply know that this is an unholy trinity. Of sorts, right? The one who comes from the land, the one who comes from the sea, Satan himself, and this unholy trinity looking to displace God is claiming this kind of authority. And yet, what happens here? This angel comes with one foot on that land and one foot on that sea, and he roars like a lion. He claims authority where others have falsely claimed authority. They have no authority there, this is his created order. I take this to mean that he speaks for God. He comes proclaiming a message, God's message, and that message has all authority. This isn't a description of a revelation. Listen, that people can sort of decide which parts they like and which parts they don't. As we'll see more clearly as we move through Revelation. Revelation, very intentionally, is black and white. There's not, there's not like riding the fence in Revelation. It's either the mark, of, the mark of, of God, the seal of God upon your forehead, or the mark of the beast. You either belong to the devil or you belong to God. These are the kinds of images that are put out there in Revelation, right? So this isn't a revelation where you can kind of decide, you know, when God discloses himself to us in the word, we can't decide which which parts we like, which parts we don't. And this isn't a revelation where other false gods can make claims on it. They make false claims. It doesn't really, in the end, belong to them. God will be victorious. And that brings us to the second aspect of, of God's revelation, what we learn about God's revelation, like when he reveals himself to us. In verse 4, I'm going to back up a little bit to the last part of verse 3. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. 
And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Okay, so he has all authority. That leads us into now, secondly, God's revelation demonstrates his sovereign will. God's revelation demonstrates his sovereign will. In other words, he discloses what he chooses to disclose, and he hides what he chooses, he keeps hidden what he chooses to keep hidden. And as believers, we trust that God has disclosed to us everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to believe the gospel, and we trust him with that which he has not disclosed to us. What do I mean by that? Well, it's pretty clear in this verse. There's another entire section of judgment that gives a more complete picture of what will happen in the end. Like you have, right, in Revelation, we have described for us seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bulls. But actually, what John sees are seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven thunders, and seven bulls, right? So there's this 25% of what's happening that is not disclosed to us. There's this big section that's not disclosed because here John, you know, he hears these seven thunders. He's about to write it down. And when he's about to write it down, he hears this voice from heaven, probably the same voice that told him in chapter 1, write down what you hear. Except this time he's not saying write it down. He's saying the opposite. He says, seal it up. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's not to be disclosed. We see that happening in other places in Scripture. The Apostle Paul is revealed things that then uh, he's told not to disclose. Right? And so the Christian trusts. He trusts in God's revelation. He trusts in what God has disclosed and what he doesn't. This is what we need to remember whenever we're tempted to read the book of Revelation. And and let me just hear this with an open mind if if you come from a a differing viewpoint. I just encourage you to hear what I say here with an open mind because I think it's important for us. If you're tempted to read the book of Revelation, for those of us who are tempted to read it through the lens of our newspapers, rather than Old Testament theology, this is the point that we need to remember that routinely is brought to our attention in the Scriptures. Because I think sometimes we can have something of like an over-realized understanding of the end times in which like everything or even many things that we read in Revelation must be referring to all these things happening in the world today. Like first century Christians couldn't understand this yet because it was about what was happening in my time. You know, and we kind of have this approach to Revelation where it's almost like we think that we saw or heard or had disclosed to us the seven thunders. So we're making all kinds of assumptions that not only don't fit with apocalyptic literature, they don't fit with genre, that dehistoricizes the text, it pulls it out of a first century context entirely. I think it's an, it's, it doesn't read it in line with the original author having to, what he had to say in a first century context to a, to a first century audience. Not only do we do that, but we also, uh, as we do that, as we continue to look into the text and pull this out in those ways, we signal that we don't really trust. We, we, we think that we have some kind of a secret hidden wisdom. Like there have been many stories about men who predicted the end times, predicted like this idea of future rapture, that a lot of futurists would say there's this rapture, seven years of tribulation following a rapture. I don't think Revelation argues that. It's biblically defensible. defensible. It's not my view. But there are a lot of people who would say, like, who have said throughout history, I know exactly when that's going to happen. Those things are going to happen in this year, or this year, or this year. You know, um, most recently, this man, Harold Camping, 
a number of years ago did this. And the pattern here, right, it hasn't just happened once. It happened in the 90s too, but I can't remember his name, the 80s and 90s. But the pattern is, like, there's, a, there's like a very confident, bold prediction made about like, we're living in the end times. This is happening at this point. This is what this means. And then things move forward and none of that pans out. But, but the predictor doesn't say, huh, maybe God just didn't disclose this to us. And we need to read this instead in light of the first century. The predictor says, I just miscalculated. What I meant was this date. I mean, it happens routinely. And then that date comes and goes, and then that date comes and goes. And all of these predictions about what this meant, what the mark of the beast meant, what, they're so dated. Like, for instance, when I was taking Revelation at Moody Bible Institute, one of my favorite professors there, C. Marvin Pate, he was the, I took that class from him because he's the editor of the Four Views in Revelation book by Zondervan. And in that introduction, he writes this. And just, so just keep an open mind. Okay. Of modern responses to the book of Revelation, a few come to mind. So here's one of them, he says. Obsession. Obsession is an appropriate word to describe some 8 million prophecy buffs today who pour over the prophecies of, of the apocalypse in Nostradamus style, anachronistically correlating current events with its ancient cryptic warnings. Pursuing this angle, these interpreters equate... Now listen, this was written in the 90s, so it's helpful. Okay? These interpreters equate red China with the kings from the east, the European common market with the ten horns of the beast, the mark of the beast in Revelation 13 with everything from credit cards to the internet, Okay, um, the Antichrist with a parade of prominent people including Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Henry Kissinger, Mikhail Gorbachev. Such a crystal ball reading of the last book of the Bible, however, has undoubtedly caused more harm than good and is best avoided. So I agree with him that it's best avoided. And I I agree with him for a few different reasons. Number one, because I think it's not reading this text and the genre it was given to us in. Our our desire in Scripture should be to read the Scriptures in light of of what the original author is intending to say to a first century audience. This is apocalyptic genre. We have to read it through that lens. We we can't dehistoricize it. Okay, so I think that there's a problem there. But I also think there's a problem because it demonstrates that we don't trust, trust that God's disclosed what he disclosed and he hasn't what he has Like, 20 years ago, right? Credit cards and the internet. How many of you have Wi-Fi and credit cards, right? Okay, so hang on. But there was a time when people were saying, oh, that's Mark of the Beast. What, what, do we, what, what would Dr. Pate write if it was today? Oh, you know, m- m- microchips and vaccines, right? And 20 years from now, those won't be the Mark of the Beast. It'll be something new. Because we're always, Marks of the Beast don't typically need uh, boosters, right? So we're, we all... You know, we keep changing and moving forward and making new predictions and new predictions. And that's best avoided because I really honestly, I, I think that it doesn't trust the word. It doesn't trust what, what God to disclose to us what he discloses to us. You know, like one of the reasons Dr. Pate points this out, and it's the reason that I just ask you to keep an open mind, is precisely because when we start to act as though we confidently know about areas of the revelation that he's purposefully kept hidden, that we might rely on him by faith in those areas, knowing that we have everything we need by faith to persevere to the end. When, when we start to act like we confidently know, we demonstrate a lack of trust in God's sovereign will. On the other hand, let me say a word in the defense of those people who've concluded this way in Revelation, because at least the people who take that approach to Revelation have the view that it's relevant for today. Okay? Because another entire group, Dr. Pate would say, yes, obsession, but another one would be irrelevance. 
People who just essentially never open up Revelation because they can't see how it could possibly be helpful for Christians today. And I also think that's a lack of trust in, in what God has, how God has disclosed himself. He disclosed himself in Revelation, but there are things he's kept hidden. So we see it as relevant, but we're also humble with it. Like, no one knows the day or the hour, Jesus says. And no, that doesn't mean, but you can know the month and the year, right? No, the idea is it hasn't been disclosed. It hasn't been disclosed. No man knows the day or the hour, but, Jesus says, keep watch. No man knows the day or the hour. Things are hidden, but keep watch. Because he's coming. He's coming. And that brings us to the third aspect. Because so God's revelation is universally authoritative, demonstrates his sovereign will, and because of all that, thirdly, God's revelation gives assurance of his promises. God's revelation gives assurance of his promises. What is the promise? Verses 5 through 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, so there you see it again, his authority, raised his right hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced, there's that word actually, euangelion, gospel. Just as he gospeled, just as he proclaimed the gospel, right? Just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So this angel raises his right hand, swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created all that's in it, the earth and all that's in it, the sea and what's in it. Further evidence, in my opinion, the strongest evidence that this cannot be Christ. Because it would be entirely inappropriate language to attribute to Jesus saying, raising his hand and swearing by the one who created all things. The whole point of Revelation is that Jesus is the one who lives forever and ever. He is the one who created all things. He is one with him who sits upon the throne, which is why we keep hearing this phrase over and over, uh, to him who is on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, they are one, right? Okay? So the, they're not distinct. So this, this isn't Christ. But the, whole, the point here is to say... Uh, the angel swears by God, again, speaking on God's behalf, to say this, there will be no delay. And when, God, when this God determines there will be no delay, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter what the emperor says. It doesn't matter what people in the world say. You know, it doesn't matter if somebody has a different opinion. If God says there will be no delay on something, there will be no delay. His, his uh, revelation is universally authoritative. But delay for what? Look at verse 7 again. Because this is central. But in that day, so what's he promising? What assurance are we given? But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, so that's the seventh trumpet that is yet to come. Paul's going to get to that next week. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So what does this mean? Okay, to understand that, we need to understand how this word mystery is used throughout the scripture. That the mystery of God would be fulfilled. At the, at the seventh trumpet blast, the mystery of God is fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, okay, it's not the way that, that we use the term today. The way the Bible talks about mystery isn't the way that we use the word mystery. So when we use the word mystery, we'll talk about like a mystery novel that we pick up at the airport, read on the plane, and usually leave on the sleeve uh, of the, the seat in front of us when we leave because it's usually not that good. But, but it's entertaining for the flight, right? And what does it do? Like, nobody knows what's going on in the beginning, but then finally in the end, something's disclosed. It doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean, like, some kind of vague mysticism where you actually can't know anything. And there's a way of talking about the Bible, too, where it's like, 
everything's mysterious and let's all partake of our secret sacraments and we don't really know anything. Like, that's not the case for how mystery is used in the Bible either. No, instead, and I encourage you to read like um, Old Testament and the New Testament. D.A. Carson has a lot to say on this. But, but um, this word, it's an apocalyptic term. So the Hebrew counterpart to this word is, is, on, is only used in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, also in apocalyptic literature, also like language related to the end times, this idea of mystery. And the idea is this, that which has been hidden in times past, but is now revealed. All right? That which, this is Don Carson's definition of mystery in the Bible. That which has been hidden in times past, but is now revealed. In other words, the gospel is the mystery of God. Like, it's not something you can't just quite figure out, no matter how hard you try, it's just so mysterious. But in the sense that it was hidden in ages past, though the scriptures pointed forward to it, it was hidden in ages past, but now, now it's been revealed. It's been revealed in Christ. We know it. We see what the gospel is. A Christian should be able to express what the good news of Christ is, what the gospel is, because it has been disclosed, and we'll have more to say on that this morning. So here in verse 7, John is saying, when the seventh trumpet blows, everything that God's people have been waiting and longing for together will be complete, will be made complete, will be made whole. The end will be complete. God's kingdom will come, and it will finally be consummated. And this is another reason, I think, you can't take, like, the seals into the trumpets, into the bowls as purely, you know, um, sequential. Because at the end of the seals, what did we see? The day of the Lord, the eschaton, the sky rolling back like a scroll. It was the end. And now at the end of the trumpets, what do we see? We see the end again. We see the We see the eschaton, the final trumpet call, the mystery of God being fulfilled in the sense that now God's revelation is finally fully disclosed to us. We know all of it. It's disclosed. It's fulfilled. Just as God already announced it would be. And there's that word, euangelion, the proclamation of good news. In other words, what we see here is that God's revelation gives assurance of his promises. Like, he has promised he will come again to make all things new. He has promised that his kingdom will finally be consummated. He has promised that for those who trust in him, though we are all due his wrath, though we all have the problem of sin, though with Adam we all sinned, though uh, those who were created set themselves as enemies against God in their sin, through Christ, by faith in what he's done, by faith in his coming to bear wrath for the sinner. We might have Christ. We might be reconciled to God. We might be in union with Christ so that when Christ, when God looks upon us, he sees his son. He sees the lamb. That has been promised. He promises that that kingdom, that union will be perfectly consummated. It will be complete. The end will come. The mystery of the gospel will be fulfilled and, and he will surely do it. It's not some kind of question, right? But that brings us to a fourth aspect now that's hard to swallow, pun fully intended, Because as we saw last week, when God makes a promise of his justice rolling down, there are a couple aspects to that justice, right? So let's start in verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. What on earth is going on here? Well, again, apocalyptic literature, right? Not meant to be taken literally. This is an image for us to read, symbolism. And the imagery comes from the prophet Ezekiel. 
John uses it slightly differently, but the idea here is that just like Ezekiel, just like Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, John actually has to partake God's word before he proclaims it. And as he does that, it's sweet to his taste, sweet like honey, and that should remind us of passages like this in Psalm 119, right? How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Why is God's word sweeter than honey to the mouth of those who believe? Because it contains the gospel for the sinner. It tells us of Christ, through whom we can be reconciled to God and have new life. It tells us that despite our sin, despite what we deserve for our sin, Christ went to the cross on our behalf so that by trusting in him, we can be saved from what we deserve and actually get what he deserved, which was life. In other words, God's revelation brings salvation to the hearer, and that brings us sweetness. It reconciles us with God. And so that's sweet. And yet, the news of, of that, so, so it revives the soul of the prophet, but it's also bitter to the stomach. Why? Why? Because along with salvation, the prophet must also proclaim judgment for those who reject that. Like, there will be those who hear what the prophet says and they harden their heart against the message he brings. Chapter 9 ended that way, right? We already said that. So there will be those who hear this plea to lay down your weapons and join the kingdom, but instead they'll take up their weapons against the good king. And for those people, the prophet must pronounce judgment. And that's bitter. That's hard. That's weighty for us. That's the fourth aspect. God's revelation, number four, brings both salvation and judgment. Brings both. Salvation for those who believe. Judgment for those who reject. In the end, God gives you over to what you want. If you want him to be your Lord and Savior, he gives you that. If you want to be your own Lord and Savior for all eternity, he gives you that. You're not going to want Christ in hell. That's the whole point. You want yourself for all eternity. And if that's what you want, that's what you get. In the end, God just gives you what you want. God of the Bible is just. So what are we called to do with this? Well, we see the final aspect of God's revelation in verse 11. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Okay, hang on. Finally, we see God's revelation is to be proclaimed to the nations. So this, this, this revelation that's universally authoritative discloses God's sovereign will like he chooses what's hidden and what's revealed and we need to trust him. It gives assurance of God's promises. It brings both salvation and judgment. That, that revelation is to be proclaimed to all the nations. What do I mean by that? Well, the church is meant to proclaim the good news that we find in the scriptures and join in this act of declaring that those who trust Christ fully, those who trust in his work rather than their own work, his work on their behalf, will have life, and those who reject him will have judgment. In other words, God has revealed these things to John. And now, with that revelation, comes the responsibility to herald it faithfully, faithfully that people might repent and believe. You know, the idea isn't unlike Jonah. This is actually what Jonah did. He went to Nineveh and he prophesied about them. You know? He doesn't prophesy to them or like, he doesn't say like, he doesn't actually ever tell them to repent. Jonah goes to the Ninevites and he just says, judgment's coming. I'm going to prophesy about you. Judgment's coming and you deserve it. And he spoke those words that people might hear and say, well, if, but if we repent, maybe God will have mercy with us. But this is John's calling. He must proclaim the gospel that people might believe and repent. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. But if we're to do this, if we're to take part in this as a church, if we're to proclaim this gospel, we must partake of that gospel. We must first receive its sweetness, of course. And continue to receive its sweetness. That's what, man, 
This liturgy at Gospel Life Church is meant to be sweet to your mouth, sweet like honey, because you're hearing the gospel every week. And that gospel should assure you, right? It should encourage. It should remind you of the truth that there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. We partake of that and we must know its sweetness. We must first know the one who came into the world to offer life that we might proclaim him to one another. We must seek revival from within the walls of the church because sometimes we hear the gospel, it's sweet as honey, but it's also bitter in the sense that it provokes repentance. That's also sweetness in its own way, but it provokes like, oh man, I'm a sinner in need of confession of sin and repentance of that sin and believing in the gospel where I wasn't believing in it prior, that I might know Christ more, that I might become more and more like Jesus, Right? Seeking revival from within the walls of the church that leads to conviction of sin. Repentance here that we might see revival outside the walls of the church with all peoples and nations and languages and kings as the gospel goes out. See, we can't, we can't be ministers of the gospel out somewhere else or to others if we ourselves haven't partaken and repented and sought, actually sought revival. When people pray, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who said this, that when people pray, Lord, I... I want revival within me first. Oftentimes we don't even know what we're asking. Right? Because God's quick to, yes, allow us to taste the sweetness of the gospel, but that bitterness of the need to repent as well. And then we take, so, so we take that gospel with us. And that sweetness of the gospel is sweet to our mouths, but it's also bitter in the world in which we live as people heap condemnations on Christians and this is why we must proclaim it to one another. This is why we must treasure it here. This is why we must taste of the sweetness of the gospel weekly and we proclaim it to one another at the table each week to do just that. As you come this morning, and this is a meal for believers, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you don't know what to think about Jesus, participate, but participate by observing. Ask me questions about why we do this thing with wine and bread, but this is a proclamation of gospel to one another. What Jesus did, his body broken for us, his blood shed that we might know Christ. And listen, what I want you to do this morning is as you come forward, take these elements and think about the sweetness, right? Like, this is sweet. It's sweet because it's in here. It, it proclaims Jesus to us. It, it, it reminds us that he's, he's with us. He's in us. There's sweetness as we taste this together in communion, bitter as we go out. But in the midst of that bitterness, God's given us grace. He's given us what we need to endure it because he goes with us. So come forward. Take the elements back to your seat and we'll taste of the sweetness together.